Multitasking is just not humanly possible to do two things at the same time when both things are effortful. Now, what we're doing is we're switching our attention really fast, back and forth, back and forth. Welcome to Hardly Working, a podcast about how we can improve work, life, and everything in between. These are recordings from live conversations on Fishbowl, a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can join us live next time on the Fishbowl app. We have events every day. All right, let's get right into it. Hello, Fishbowl listeners, uh, community, and friends. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so just a, a brief introduction. My name is Tyler Shores. I manage the Think Lab at the University of Cambridge in the UK. And I'm here with Gloria Mark, who's the author of her new book, Attention Span. And she's also a professor at the University of California, Irvine, and happens to be one of my favorite research experts. So this is the first time on Fishbowl for both of us. Um, you can follow us by clicking on our profiles and get in touch with us and notify us of future conversations. So uh, we're very excited to be here. Um, I think this will be kind of a, a fun way to have a, a chat with all of you, and uh, we're interested to hear from you and uh, some of your stories and questions. We're going to talk about our relationship with our devices, and um, it's something we've both uh, thought about uh, for quite some time. To start us off, Gloria, would you like to give us a brief preview about what you'll be talking about? Yeah, so hello, Fishbowl listeners. So today, Tyler and I are going to have a discussion. Uh, I'll be presenting research from my new book about how our attention spans have declined measurably over the last 20 years, why this is happening. And here's a, a full disclosure. It's not what you think and how we can gain agency and control over our attention. So this morning or this afternoon or this evening, wherever you are, we're going to open up the mind's black box. We're going to see what happens when we use our devices. Gloria, I guess we could start by talking about um, what is exactly happening with our attention span in the digital age? What's happened with our attention spans over time, over recent years and decades? Well, you know, I've, I've been studying attention over the last 20 years, and we first started studying attention on screens back in 2004, and we, we measured these empirically. We, we would observe people. At that time in 2004, we used a stopwatch. Much later, we used computer logging methods, which are much more unobtrusive and very accurate. We found in 2004, attention spans averaged about two and a half minutes on average. Around 2012, we saw them averaging about 75 seconds on any screen. In the last five or six years, we found that they went down to an average of about 47 seconds on any screen before people switched. Research was also replicated by others in independent studies who found very similar uh, time spans, 44 seconds, 50 seconds, so all within a few seconds. So with an average of 47 seconds, that's pretty short. Uh, the median length of attention span is 40 seconds. That means half of all the observations that we had were 40 seconds or less. So basically, we can say that our attention spans have diminished over the last 20 years since we've been measuring this. And a lot's happened over those 20 years. So, for example, um, in 2004, I can fairly confidently say that you know, I have a smartphone. Now that smartphone didn't exist. I had a cell phone and a laptop, and that was pretty much it. Now, I fast forward now to 2023, and I can count one, two, three, four, five things within view of where I'm sitting in right now that potentially could give me a, a, a digital notification of some time. So do you think that's a factor too? the proliferation of devices and things of different ways that we could possibly get information? Uh, is that uh, doing something to our attention spans as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in 2003, Facebook was born and then we have had all these other social media giants that have come into play. The iPhone was invented in 2007. So, you know, every year we have a new source of distraction that's being introduced. 
So yes, absolutely. But I also want to mention that it turns out that people are just as likely, about half the time, just as likely to interrupt themselves, to self-interrupt, as to be interrupted by something external to them. So we, we can blame notifications and, and targeted ads. You know, algorithms are very sophisticated. But we also interrupt ourselves. So, you know, we have an urge to look up information. We might have a memory of an unfinished task. So, you know, we're constantly in this battle for our attention, uh, whether we're self-interrupting or being interrupted by something external to us. I think that's a really good point, Gloria, that also in my research and writing and teaching that I do, I tend to shy away a little bit from, you know, necessarily demonizing technology as in, you know, there's kind of a knee-jerk reaction sometimes with like, oh, it's technology's fault. It's the big tech company's fault. But we do have to give ourselves some credit or some responsibility as well when it comes to exactly like you said. It's like, yeah, we can have distractions, but some of these are self-interruptions just purely from our or urge for novelty or just being bored or wanting to be entertained, right? Yeah, there, there are a lot of reasons. And um, certainly there's some conditioning involved. So we looked at our data and we plotted our data in terms of whether people were externally interrupted or self-interrupted. And we did this on an hourly basis. And we find that when external interruptions go down, people begin to self-interrupt more. So it's as though they're as though people have this habit, this this conditioning to keep being interrupted. And if the interruptions are not coming by something external, then they're coming from within ourselves. So we've we've fallen into this pattern of interrupting, being interrupted. Yes. Question. I'm going to um, invite Jason aboard here. I'm a little familiar uh, with with Gloria's work, but I I would say that I work in the attention uh, business. I'm in advertising and I do uh, communication strategy. So attention is a big deal for our clients. What I have somewhat of a complicated understanding of is, is it really that attention spans have gotten shorter or our ability to tolerate things that are uninteresting has just increased or decreased. That's hard to disentangle. To be able to do that, you would really need to do a precise study and ask people every time they're interrupted, you know, what's what's the reason for that? Some, some people have done a study to find out why people self-interrupt. Being uninterested is just one small reason. Mm-hmm. There's there's lots of other reasons as well why people self-interrupt. Right. And yeah, and, and what's interesting to me too, and I'll just leave it at this, I've done a lot of focus groups and I do UX research a lot to look at like what captivates interest and how long somebody can stick with a task. What confounds me is the same people who have a short interest span for reading something will sit and binge hours of a show and never look at their phone like last Mm. of us for example you know and so it's what i'm constantly trying to tell clients is we need to kind of hack that the the storytelling like make whatever we're doing interesting enough not to compete with attention spans but that whatever we do intrigues at a level that it almost puts blinders on on the individual and and so what are what out there is captivating attention for long periods of time and then what is sifting through faster? I like you said, Gloria. The having to you know really focused research. This is an area I'm very fascinated in because I just I just have a hard time buying that it's really the problem is that we don't have attention spans. But what are we willing to spend prolonged periods of time giving our attention to? So so Jason, what you're saying is not these are not contradictory things. Because attention is goal-oriented. We direct our attention according to what our goal is. And, you know, a lot of times our goal is to do something interesting. And so, you know, if something is not interesting, our, our goals, can we can lose our goals. When we lose our goals, then we become susceptible to some other kind of distraction. Goals are the best shield we have to keep our attention on course. 
Thank you. I appreciate you. Yeah, great question. Thanks, Jason. Just to pick things up, Gloria, um, since we're talking a little bit about um, how tech has changed over the years and how we've kind of fit our lives and our attention span, so to speak, around, you know, changes in tech and all of these things. How about multitasking? Let's talk about multitasking. So chances are, statistically speaking, just based on how many people are here right now, some of us are multitasking right now. Is multitasking bad? What happens in our minds when we multitask? And what does that do for our performance? That's a great question. So let's break down what we mean by multitasking. So a lot of people think it means doing two things at the same time. Human attention is such that you can't do two things at the same time that where both things involve effort. If one of those things involve what's called automatic attention, we can do that alongside some other task that requires effort. So we can drive, which is automatic, and we can talk at the same time. But as soon as a car swerves in front of you, you stop talking, and all of a sudden, the task of driving becomes effortful. Or, you know, people can walk and text, and walking is automatic, right? And so you have to use some thought into texting. But as soon as a bicyclist comes along and tries to clip you, all of a sudden your attention is on your walking and you stop. So multitasking is is just not humanly possible to do two things at the same time when both things are effortful. Now, what we're doing is we're switching our attention really fast, back and forth, back and forth. And there's three reasons why why this harms performance. The first is people make more errors. So we know from decades of laboratory research that people make more errors when they shift their attention fast. We know in real-world studies, so studies with pilots, people in the medical profession, doctors, nurses, they make more errors. We also know that performance slows. And so every time you switch your attention from one thing to another, there's a switch cost. And if I were to open up the mind's black box and give you a metaphor of what's happening every time you switch tasks, imagine that, you know, every time we do something, we have a representation of what we're doing. If I'm writing an article, I have a representation of what do I want to write about? Who are the people involved? Whether what are the facts I want to write about? I've got this inside my mind. Imagine that we write that on a whiteboard inside of our minds. And then suddenly we switch and check email. It's like erasing that whiteboard and rewriting the new representation of email. Who's the sender? What how do I need to respond? And then suddenly you switch to some other task. You're erasing that whiteboard from the email task and writing something new for this new task. That's what's going on every time we switch our attention. And sometimes, just like with a real whiteboard, we can't erase it completely and it leaves a residue. So, you know, imagine that you're reading a news site, some news story, and you you read this gripping news story, and then you go back and you try to work. There's that residue of the emotion from that news story that stays with you and it interferes with your current task. The last reason why multitasking is bad is because it causes stress, and and we do see causality. So we know that in laboratory studies, it raises blood pressure. There's a physiological marker associated with stress that indicates it. In my research, we've had people wear heart rate monitors, and that indicated people were stressed as their attention was shifting faster. And we also ask people, and so we know people's psychological perception of stress has increased when they're multitasking. So overall, it's not a good thing. Yeah, I really like that uh, metaphor, the uh, the whiteboard metaphor, and uh, even the example you gave, Gloria, about walking and, uh, you know, texting. And I guess this touches upon Jason's question a little bit, too. There's degrees of immersion and attention as well. Uh, when you think about some things just require more of our attention, draw us in more. As I'm saying this, the first thing that comes to mind is when um, Pokemon Go was suddenly everywhere. everywhere. Everyone was playing Pokemon Go, and they actually had to add a, a warning sign 
sign in the game, uh, warning notification to be like, remember to look around so you don't walk off a cliff or, you know, jump in front of a car or something because people were so immersed in looking at their screens while they were, you know, walking around in the real world. Yeah, what a what a great example. Yeah. <laughs> You never know sometimes where tech is going to take us. In your book, you talk about different kinds of attention. And um, oftentimes we only think about being focused or unfocused in almost kind of an either or situation. Um, Are there other types of uh, attention? Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, there are. So, you know, when I first started studying attention, I realized that sometimes we can be very engaged in something and challenged. So we're using a lot of mental effort. If I'm trying to write something or read something difficult, but sometimes we can be very engaged in something and we're not at all challenged. And I think this is what, what Jason brought up about being engaged with, with you know, watching a video or people might play some simple game and they'll be really engaged in it and it's just hard to pull away. We call that rote attention. And the first kind of tension where you're engaged and challenged, we call focus. We, we give it a label of being focused. If you're not at all engaged and you're not at all challenged, that's a state of boredom. And if you're challenged, but you're not engaged, then we call it a state of frustration. An example of that is when I have a tech problem, I get so frustrated and it's very challenging. I can't figure it out. And I'm just not engaged or motivated to try to do this. But I'm forced to. I have to because I I need to use my computer. So these are different kinds of attention. And it turns out that with focused attention, that's where people are engaged and challenged. We see rhythms, times of peak focus and times of troughs throughout the day. And most people are focused at their peaks between uh, 10, 11 a.m., so mid-morning, then there's a trough, and then there's another peak again at 2 to 3 in the afternoon. And this corresponds with the, the ebb and flow of uh, the attentional resources that we have. So we only have a limited capacity of attentional resources. We have to distribute them throughout the day. You know, sometimes we have more resources available, sometimes less depending on what we're doing, how tired we are, whether we take breaks or not. But we do see these kinds of rhythms, and it depends on a person's chronotype. So if you're an early type, you you peak earlier in the day. If you're a late type, you'll peak much later. So um, the key thing is to understand your own rhythms of attention when you're at your peak focus and and use that time wisely for, for doing your hard work. Yeah, and speaking of um, rhythm, I like in the book where you talk about, you say that rhythm is the new flow. Could you elaborate on that a little bit for us and uh, uh, tell us a little bit more what you mean by that? Sure. So, you know, flow, I think probably most people are familiar with the concept of flow. You can think of it as the the optimal amount of creativity when when a person is so immersed in something that time doesn't matter. Before I studied psychology, I actually had studied art. And I used to get into flow regularly when I was an artist. It it was the nature of the profession. You know, it's inherently creative. But now that I've been doing science, when I switched, I switched to a more analytical kind of thinking. I rarely get into flow. It's not bad. It's not bad. It's just, it's a different kind of mindset that's being used. I'm still as rewarded and fulfilled as when I was doing art, but rarely get into flow. And, you know, I speak to many knowledge workers and knowledge workers report the same thing. They rarely experience flow, but it's, it's about the nature of the work that's just not conducive to flow. If you want to get into flow, you can do art, you can play music, do sports, take up a hobby, like woodworking. So there's a lot of ways you can get into flow. But, you know, the nature of doing things like writing or creating budgets are not necessarily conducive to flow. So finding your rhythm of when your attention is at its peak is going to serve you a lot better than than striving for flow. 
you know, being focused is a precursor for getting into flow. And so depending on what your task is, you might get into flow. You first have to, you first have to be focused. So get into a state of focus before you can take that next step. But, you know, rather than being unrealistic about getting into flow, let's think about understanding our rhythm and working with our attentional rhythm. Yeah, I think that's really helpful, Gloria. Thanks. In terms of uh, understanding that a lot of these things we're talking about, attention, uh, flow, et cetera, um, aren't necessarily just yes, no kind of questions, but are a matter of degree. And I think that can be very helpful in a way. Um, A wise philosopher once said, only a Sith uh, deals in absolutes. So understanding that it's from Star Wars, by the way. But the idea is that, um, you know, like it is, it's not quite as as simple as a yes or no um, answer in a lot of these. So we kind of have to do some digging on our own as kind of like self-researchers to figure out like, you know, what does work for us and uh, really get into like fairly complex uh, topics and understandings. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you want to understand what your own personal rhythm is, you can start by figuring out what your chronotype is. So, you, you know, you can take a test online. It's called the morningness-eveningness test. Uh, but, but I would bet that most people have a pretty good idea if you're an early type, you know, you like to wake up at 5 a.m., uh, you know, then you're just ready to go and your attention is, is at its peak. Um, other people want to sleep until 10 a.m. or noon. They're, they're late types. And, you know, they don't really get their attentional resources up to gear until much later. Most of us are moderate types. So for most of us, you're, you're going to get to your peak um, mid-morning and then again late afternoon. And we also find that most people don't start their day, you know, ramped up, ready to go right into that uh, deep focus state. But it takes some time to ease into that state. And they generally do, you know, simple kinds of tasks until they they get the the wheels of their minds moving, and then they can go into really hard work. Yeah, I agree. We have a question. Um, I'm going to read this out. The question is, and I guess, what role does ADHD have in um, in terms of our attention spans? Well, you know, people with ADHD do have measurably shorter attention spans than most other people. You know, there there are tests you can take. If you're if you're wondering whether you have ADHD or not, there there are tests you can take, or you can speak with a medical professional and get assessed to find out whether you have ADHD. Generally speaking, people with ADHD, they also tend to score very low in tests of conscientiousness, which is a personality trait, and high in a test of impulsivity which is another personality trait. But I would say it's it's much better to get assessed by a medical professional to find out if you do have ADHD. And then there are strategies, there's coping strategies that you can do to improve your attention. Great. We have a couple questions here regarding attention and are there ways to improve focus? Does for example, meditation help. The question that uh, knowing that our audience is made up of folks from all over the you know business, different industries, and these sort of things, we probably have a number of uh, managers and leaders in the audience as well. So uh, my question, and also summarizing um, some of the questions that are coming in for us, are uh, recommendations that you have to give to help manage employees when it comes to attention span and focus. Yeah. So let's start with uh, what managers and business leaders can do. So, you know, first and foremost, put well-being as the main goal for employees. I know there's there's a lot of push for productivity, but, you know, hold on a moment because productivity will come, but put well-being as the main goal for your employees first. So stress is at an epidemic high, and this is according to the World Health Organization. We know that when people are juggling different tasks and different priorities, we know that it causes stress. We, we know that multitasking causes stress. So the important thing is to think about what you can do for employees to have better well-being. They can then do more. They will be more productive. There's a, a theory in psychology that's called broaden and build. 
And what it says is that if people have, if people feel positive, if they have good well-being, they actually have more choices of how they can act. They can be more proactive. If they're in a, a difficult situation, say a conflict, they have more choices of ways that they can behave to control the situation. They can generate more ideas and better quality ideas. So overall, good well-being is, is a, a target to aim for. So related to that, I would say for managers and business leaders, consider deadlines when you assign tasks. So space out your deadlines so that employees have a chance to monotask. So if you're giving them multiple tasks which have deadlines that are very close to each other, this is only going to encourage multitasking. So try to assign tasks in such a way so that employees can work on one thing to completion before starting something else instead of juggling tasks. The last thing, and this is something organizations can do, is they can institute a quiet time during the day where there's no electronic communications being sent. And then this changes people's expectations. So we know from our research that people check email on average 77 times a day, which is crazy, but that's the average. And so if you know there's a period of time during the day, no communications will be sent. This can help rewire our expectations and can help change habits so that people are not constantly interrupting. And we do know, and this is from research that I did where we cut off email in an organization for a full week. We know that when email was cut off, people had significantly longer attention spans on their other screens. They didn't have the the email client available, but on all the other things they did, they spent significantly longer in their attention. What a concept. No email for a week. I assume they went out of business after the the week, right? (laughs) No, (laughs) No, it's actually a thriving company now, but people, (laughs) people went back on email. The email thing, just to briefly comment, is, uh, yeah, what are your thoughts about, because you've done a lot of you know research, particularly on email use, and I guess I'll, I'll say me not to single anyone out, but I was like, most of the email I get in the course of the day or week is kind of boring or not that interesting. Why do I check my email so often? Well, you know, there's something in psychology called a variable reward schedule. And what that means is that we get rewarded not every time we do something, but at random intervals. So imagine when you go to Las Vegas and you're playing a slot machine, you you don't get the win every time you pull the lever, but Mm -hmm. it happens randomly. And it's enough to keep us glued to that thing we're doing. So for email, you know, every so often you'll get this incredibly rewarding email. Let's say it's an invitation for something. It's enough to keep you checking that email because you're seeking that reward. You know that reward is going to come at some point. It's the same with TikTok videos. That's why people are glued to TikTok. Not every video is so great, but every so often a video comes along and it's just hilarious. And it's enough to keep you glued to TikTok because you're waiting for that next hilarious video to come along. We have a question from the audience that I will read, and that, again, leads into a question for you, Gloria. So, interesting question about uh, relating back to what you're talking about, different chronotypes and things. Is it possible to change your eveningness to morningness? So that's the audience question. And then I guess that would lead to my broader question of like, you know, what can we do? We listening to you and hearing about your research and all of the knowledge in this. What can we do to gain agency over our own behaviors and, you know, attention and digital habits? Yeah, that's a really important question. Both of those are important. So can people change chronotypes? Well, uh, it's, it's hard. You know, when people do shift work, that's changing chronotype. You know, suddenly you're given the night shift. Let's say you're a nurse and you've been working during the days and then suddenly you're, you're switched to do a night shift. Um, we know from lots of research that this really creates a lot of problems for people. Um, you know, it, it's, their, their body has a hard time adjusting. So um, if, if it's possible to, you know, if, if there's no reason why you have to suddenly switch to a completely different routine, 
I, I would say don't do it because it, it, it upsets our bodily system. And, you know, even at the physiological level, and it's just not a good idea. So, so let me switch over and talk about uh, what individuals can do to gain control over their attention, because uh, that's part of this question. It was a question that was raised earlier. So first of all, um, people can practice what's called meta-awareness. And let me explain what, what I mean by that. So meta-awareness is the, the awareness of what you're doing as it's unfolding. Now, a lot of what we do, a lot of the actions we do on our computers and phones are automatic. So we, we use automatic attention. So when I see my phone, I grab it. I'm not thinking about it. It's automatic. When I switch to social media or I switch to a news site, it's an automatic action, right? I'm not, it's, I'm not consciously aware of it. And so the goal here is to make these unconscious automatic actions more conscious for us. And if we can bring them to our conscious awareness, we can be intentional, we can act, and we can change our behavior. So how do we do this? So when, when I'm working uh, and I get an urge to check the news, I'm a news junkie, I will probe myself and I'll say, Gloria, why do I have to go to that news site right now? And I, it's usually because I'm bored with what I'm doing or maybe what I'm doing is I've come across something that's hard and I just don't want to deal with it. Uh, could be because I'm tired and I need a break, but I probe myself to understand the reasons. Now, if it's something like boredom or task is difficult, if I understand that, then, I under, then it helps me be intentional. What do I need to do to solve this problem? Uh, if I if I need a break, okay, fine, and I'll go and I'll check out the news, or maybe I'll play a simple game. Uh, then I also have to probe myself. Okay, do I feel replenished? You know, enough time has gone by. You know, it's time to get back from work. But constantly probing yourself, it's it's a skill that you can develop, and it's it's like a muscle. The more you do it the stronger this muscle becomes. And, and it becomes second nature. And so I'm constantly probing myself, and it helps keep me on track. Um, an, another thing, let me mention, that people can do is to practice what's called forethought. And forethought means understanding how our current actions impact our future selves. And usually what makes sense is to think of your future self at the end of the day. So if you're someone who is prone to spending 30 minutes or 60 minutes on social media or news, a news site, or playing a game, before you go there, before you start that activity, imagine your end of the day. Imagine where you'll be at 10 p.m. Are you going to be relaxing? Are you going to be enjoying a glass of wine and watching your favorite show, reading your favorite book? Or are you still going to be working on that deadline? Right. So the more clear that visualization can be, the better able it is to stop you in your tracks. So practicing forethought is is really valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think these are these are uh, valuable tips. And just to um, uh, if I can, like expand on the question a little bit, too, is that since we're talking about behaviors and habits, these are things that happen gradually over time, right? Every time there's a new app that we introduce on our phone, a new update, a new device we bring into our worker lives and these sort of things. So these habits, you know, we gradually build up and change these habits over time. So um, what's the reasonable, like if you had to give a broad estimate in terms of like um, these changes that you're talking about, making sure that we're more mindful and that we pause and uh, do these things, it's not going to happen overnight, right? In terms of like, you know, how do we actually, are we actually going to be able to change these habits where it becomes less of an automatic behavior? Yes, it's certainly not over overnight. Uh, it took me, I would say, probably a couple of months to really um, integrate this behavior, th these kinds of probing questions into my my day-to-day -day behavior. 
So, you know, it, it took me a while. And, and now these questions are just second nature. You know, I, I'm, what I do for a living is observe people to understand behavior. And I began to realize that I can also be a professional observer of myself, of my own behavior. Anyone can. Anyone. It's about learning how to be objective and viewing your behavior. When you probe yourself, it's a way to help yourself be objective. And again, it's also raising these automatic unconscious actions into your conscious awareness and realizing, oh, I'm grabbing my phone. Why am I doing that? I don't need to do that. And um, and then it, it just becomes second nature and, um, you know, it, it becomes a new habit that you've developed. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good realistic estimate um, in terms of, you know, habits. Habits are changeable, I think, but it does take a little bit of time and effort. And we can set up our, our digital environments or our physical environments to give us the best chance to succeed at these sort of things. So um, I'd, yeah. I'd like to... Actually, oh, yeah. Tyler, I, I mm-hmm. just want to mention one more thing about sure. what individuals can do. Um, there is this notion of... Uh, the, the Japanese have an expression called yohaku no bi, which means the beauty of empty space. And, you know, I mentioned I used to be an artist. And in art, you're, you're not only concerned with the figure you're drawing or the objects you're drawing and painting, but also the space around them. Uh, the Japanese, when they design Japanese gardens, are very concerned with the space around the rocks. So when they design these beautiful Japanese gardens, the rocks are positioned in such a way to really take advantage of the space around them. It really allows the, the beauty of these rocks to, um, to come through. And in the same way, we should think about designing our days to include empty space. We're, we're used to the idea of packing in things back to back as much as we can. And then we have this notion, yeah, we should take breaks when we're tired. But what about intentionally designing time into your day, time for contemplation, meditation, time to really replenish? We've, we have these spent attentional resources, usually comes after these peak focus times. But design and time when you can really pull away and when our attentional resources are replenished, when we're building up our tank of resources, we can actually be more focused. It's when when we're exhausted, when our attentional resources are low, that's when we're really susceptible to distraction. I do really like that empty space uh, metaphor, and I think um, it's it's a good mental image for us to kind of keep in mind. And I'm reflecting, I noticed that we've got a number of uh, uh, tech and knowledge worker folks um, in our audience today. And I was like, I say this to someone who came from the tech industry and am a little bit of a reformed efficiency trap uh, junkie in terms of like, how how much work and stuff can I fit into a day or a week? Not healthy, really not healthy in terms of like, it's work in life is really supposed to be more of a marathon and not a sprint. You can't sprint your way through a work week or a work month without consequences. So everything you're saying, Gloria, I think is really important to um, reiterate. At a bigger picture level, I wanted to kind of almost zoom our camera out on this discussion a little bit and thinking about, should we or how could we think of solutions talking about, you know, gaining a sense of agency on attention behaviors, habits, and whatnot um, at a larger level? So not just on the individual level, but at a, you know, at a social level, I guess. So there are right to disconnect laws, which I think are very promising. So in France, there's the El Khomri law, Uh, Ireland and Ontario have right to disconnect policy. What this says is that uh, employees will not be penalized or punished in any way if they do not answer electronic communications after work hours. So it gives employees really a chance to pull away from work, to detach from work. And it's so important to psychologically detach from work it's, uh, it helps alleviate stress. It also actually helps people reattach to work better the next day when, when you've got this really nice break and you're starting work replenished and, and refreshed. Um, 
Interestingly, New York City tried to enact a right to disconnect law, did not pass. Uh, and um, the, most uh, organizations and companies were very much against uh, having such a right to disconnect law. My, my favorite argument came from New York City Bureau of Tourism. They said, uh, there's a reason why New York is the tourist capital of the world. It's because we're the city that never sleeps. And, of course, they don't want their employees to sleep either. Uh, let me also just quickly say that uh, I, I think on a societal level, we also need to think about better media literacy education for K through 12 and also at the university level. So not just teaching. I mean, it's important, very important to teach um, uh, topics like uh Cyber uh, against cyberbullying, against misinformation, how to recognize misinformation, but also teaching people about tech overuse and restraint from uh, being on screens too often. Americans, on average, are on some kind of screen 10 hours a day. This is according to Nielsen, uh, which is really way too much. And uh, teenagers and kids are also uh, on screens pretty much during the day, not as long, but quite a bit. Yeah, well, we're talking at the social level and, you know, talking about, you know, cultural change obviously is hard. And um, what you're saying, Gloria, reminds me of, um, uh, especially nowadays, it seems like the the cultural discussion is changing a little bit around. Uh, People might be familiar with the term hustle culture uh, listening in now. So that's the idea of, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of, how do I even describe it? But just the, uh, the, the, the pride in always working and possibly overworking in the sort of things. Um, there's an article that I um, uh, always assign to students. Um, it's an Atlantic article, and it's called uh, Ugh, I'm So Busy. And it's the, this whole perception of busyness as a status symbol, um, if anyone wants to check that out. But um, it's good It's good thought-provoking things that I think um, uh, touch upon what we're talking about now. And uh, I guess this is almost like a uh, an almost philosophical question, but can tech itself provide the solutions to some of the things we're talking about in terms of gaining that sense of agency over our digital attention and digital habits and what whatnot. Yeah. Uh, I think ironically and strangely enough, I, I do believe that tech can provide solutions. So first of all, I know what's really popular is for people to do digital detoxes. Um, and, you know, digital detox is where you're, you know, you stay away from technology for a period of time. That works for the time you're away, but then you come right back to your screens. You have the same habits that you fall into pretty quickly. So it, it's not a lasting solution. It's like going on a crash diet. You know, you'll lose the weight, but then you go back to your old eating habits and you're, you know, you, you've fallen off the wagon. So... It's much better to change your way of using technology. So not just doing a digital detox and getting right back. So back to tech, I do think that AI can be developed to serve as a coach, to provide nudges to people, to help people do the the behaviors they need to do to pay attention better. So, for example, AI could learn a person's patterns of behavior uh, at an individual level. So when when are you performing at your peak? When do you tend to be exhausted? Uh, you know, so the AI can make suggestions and say, look, you know, it looks like you've been using sustained attention for a period of time. Let's uh, don't you think it's time to take a break and um, pull back, get yourself replenished? If, if you are, say, on social media and you're on social media for uh, it's starting to become too long, uh, your smart assistant can nudge you and say, look, Gloria, it's time to get back to work. Now, ideally, the AI should not do the work for you, but it should be a coach, right? It should be a coach teaching you that teaching all of us the, the right behaviors that we need to do so that eventually we can wean ourselves off of the AI because we've learned these correct behaviors. It's, it's like having a, a coach, a person who can teach us the right things to do. 
But, you know, another way that tech can provide solutions, um, and this is in the design of technology. And I think that design teams need to include psychologists on them. Uh, not, Not just cognitive psychologists, but also clinical psychologists who really have a deep understanding of people so that they can make sure that the tech that's being designed can foster well-being and not create stress. I know a lot of tech companies, uh, they employ psychologists uh, to figure out how to make uh, targeted ads and notifications more persuasive for people. But I'm talking about putting psychologists on teams to design technology so that it's uh, it can integrate better into uh, what people do in their daily lives so that it in- can encourage people to have better well-being. I think that's a good point, Gloria. And I was, uh, I was actually thinking the same thing before you brought it up in terms of when we talk about, um, and I see we've got some folks joining us who are in the, uh, the user, user research, user experience uh, fields. But yeah, tech can do any number of things. It's kind of still on the, the human side of things to decide, make these decisions. Um, is uh, is autoplay, for example, like, you know, the uh, um, you've just finished this one episode or this one video. Should we automatically serve you another thing? Is that technologically we can do that? Should we do those sort of things? Um, I think about, uh, you know, um, infinite scroll, right? That's always a particularly interesting one to me when it comes to, um, you know, when when Aza, uh, Aza uh, uh, Rankin kind of came up with that idea, it was sort of like, oh, this is a, a technical fix to not having to click as many buttons to get to the next page and everything. And who knew it would become this um, amazing and I don't mean amazing in a good way in this case, attention hack in terms of like keeping us immersed to keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of things to think about. I'm mindful of the time. So um, one more question for you, Gloria, and then we can open it up if anyone has any quick questions they'd like to share. But um, looking forward, uh, will our attention spans continue to get shorter and shorter? Um, do you think things will change? Are you optimistic? How do you feel about the near and you know medium and longer term future for us? So uh, in the near future, I'm not so sure things will change, but I do think medium and long term that we will do course correction. And I do think we will get our attention spans longer and and regain our attention. Why why do I say that? Because historically, um, the pendulum has always swung in in the extreme in one direction, but then it's always swung back. So um, I think that there will be a lot of various kinds of innovations. There will be policy. You know, I mentioned right to disconnect laws. There may be other kinds of laws that, you know, will be introduced. Uh, tech, I think there will be a lot of new tech um, designs that come into play that can help people better manage and, and help teach people, encourage people to have better uh, screen habits. So I, I think, you know, there will always be innovations that will come along and help us course correct. So um, I don't think attention spans are going to continue on this trajectory of getting so short that we won't be able to apprehend anything. So I, I am optimistic. Good. I think that's a positive note for us. Um, I want to make sure that we get the uh, uh, relevant information for people who want uh, a little bit more. This has been a nice kind of sneak preview on things, but uh, could you share with us, Gloria, where people, anyone listening can find out about your book and how to connect with you? Yes. So um, the the name of my book, again, is Attention Span, uh, a groundbreaking way to restore productivity, oops, sorry, to restore balance, happiness, and productivity. Uh, you can find me on www.gloriamark.com. Gloria Mark is all one word. Uh, you can find my book at Amazon or your favorite book retailer. And you can also search for me on LinkedIn or find me on Twitter. And Tyler, why don't you let people know where they can find you? Yeah, uh, I guess a similar answer minus the interesting new book out. Um, you can find me on my website, uh, tylershores.com. 
And I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter, so you can search for me. Um, not a super common name. There's a couple of us Tyler Shores is in the world, but um, you'll probably recognize me. Look for the uh, Tyler Shores that's based at uh, University of Cambridge. So that's the best way to uh, reach us. And any last questions? We've got a minute or two left. Anyone would like to raise their hand, uh, say hello, DM us. Um, yes, Crystal, hi. I do have a question, actually, and and this is just like more for the Gen Z folks who I've noticed, but there has been an upcoming trend of a lot of youngsters switching from their smartphones to actual cell phones when they go out because they, they understand that their attention span is shrinking. They understand that when they're at a concert and stuff, instead of actually focusing and being present in the moment, they they're on their phones recording the whole thing. And so mm. I just wanted to ask like you know your thoughts of us or like with fashion and a a lot of trends and things going on like is that a a good thing a bad thing like what are your thoughts about like us coming out with like flip phones or and things of that sort texting is terrible do you really want to do that um (laughs) yeah sorry i'll I'll let Lori answer (laughs) i i think it's great that people can pull away from smartphones and and learn how to interact in in the real world environment and especially to interact with other people um you know i i just think it's it's a terrible norm that has come into practice where people can be with another person but you're texting someone else or you're checking your phone for something else so yeah you know we'll we'll see if this trend uh holds you know i don't know i i did read uh, an article about this, and I see that there are some young people that are interested in this. But we'll we'll see if this trend um, catches on. I hope so. I think that's a good note to uh, for us to wrap up with less than a minute left. But we'll see. We'll see what happens in the future. So uh, to wrap up, you know, uh, we've been talking with Professor Gloria Mark here on conquering our attention spans. Her new book is uh, Attention Span and is available everywhere. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, if you enjoyed this event, um, please follow us on Fishbowl. You can click on our profiles for future events and sign up for future things. But um, I think Gloria should have the last word here. Would you like to say a farewell for everyone? before we adjourn yes uh thank you all for giving tyler and i your your hopefully undivided attention uh we we really appreciate that uh it's it's been really fun to speak with all of you i enjoyed your questions um and i i hope that you know on a on a larger scale this kind of conversation can continue and more people can be thinking about what we can do to achieve better well-being when we use our devices. And and thank you so much, Tyler, for uh, being such a great moderator. Oh, my pleasure. This is a lot of fun. We'll have to do it again sometime. So um, on that note, thank you, everyone, for spending part of your Friday with us. That's all, folks. Thanks again for listening to Hardly Working. Join us live next time and talk directly to the speakers and, who knows, end up here. Fishbowl is a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can download Fishbowl on the App Store or Google Play. If you want to host a Fishbowl live event, get in touch at live at fishbowlapp.com. See you soon!